John Nichols joining us, a pioneering political blogger. He's written the beat since 1999, and he writes about politics for The Nation magazine as its Washington correspondence. A contributing writer for The Progressive and In These Times and the associate editor of The Capital Times, the daily newspaper in Madison, Wisconsin. His articles also have appeared in The New York Times, Chicago Tribune, and dozens of other newspapers. Articles uh, written by uh, John Nichols. Uh, he's, he's written uh, various articles about freedom of the press and, um, you know, uh, also a colleague of his regarding Charlie Hebdo. More than a pleasure to have back on the program. Happy New Year, John, and welcome back uh, here on the show. Good to have you. It's good to be with you, Leslie. Uh, when we see everybody, and I ordered a T-shirt uh, just yes, the other day, two days ago, uh, Je suis Charlie, I am Charlie. Um, it is about, you know, uh, we are, um, you know, Charlie, is, is about freedom, isn't necessarily agreeing with what they put out there. And I say that because they announced by the L.A. Press Club that the Daniel Pearl Award is going to go to, they're going to give it to uh, the um, – they're going to give it to Charlie Hebdo staff, the you know offices, the mm-hmm. satirical publication. And there were some people that were calling into the local L.A. stations today saying, look, you know, the, the problem we have with this is it's, you know, very racist. And they're not even talking about against Muslims or Muhammad, which they, you know, do a heck of a lot of and have as of late. Uh, but certainly uh, people who are non-European in color, especially uh, Africans. Um, and and I say that because I think, you know, people misunderstand. We had a guy call the program yesterday that said, you know, I think it's crap. You know, it's very subjective. I think it's crap. Je suis Charlie and in support of Charlie Hebdo is not necessarily saying, hey, we like what you're writing or supporting what you're writing. writing. We support the freedom for you to write it and the fact that you were brave enough to do it knowing the risks. I think your points are well taken. Look, this is complex stuff, especially for Americans, because we have, you know, perhaps the most stilted and narrow political discourse uh, of any developed uh, country, certainly any democracy in the world. Uh, We have only two major parties. We have uh, an incredibly commercialized and often pretty lame Up his phone just dropped. Okay. Um, well, let's see uh, if our caller uh, has a comment. Uh, we will go to him and we'll be back with our guest uh, once we are uh, reconnected there. You can join us at 888-6LESLIE, 888-653-7543 is the number. And we are talking with John Nichols uh, regarding Charlie Hebdo. Um, you know, look, uh, there are people out there that would say, and I, I think and we'll hear from John when we reconnect, that Satirists and cartoonists have always been on the front line of the struggle to establish and defend freedom of expression. And the journalist and media workers of the French magazine Charlie Hebdo maintained that defense across decades of struggle to broaden and deepen the discourse about elite corruption, political extremism, and religious intolerance. Uh, back with us is John Nichols, pioneering political blogger, written for The Beat since 99, and also writing for Politics for the Nation magazine as its Washington correspondent. Uh, uh, John, glad to be reconnected with you. Please con- <laughs> Sorry please, about that. No worries. Uh, please, conti- please continue. We're talking about the defense of freedom, and specifically sure. freedom of expression, and not just in France, but around the world. As Charlie Hebdo, uh, like many uh, you know, satirical uh, magazines and cartoonists, um, struggle to establish and defend that freedom of expression. That's exactly right. And uh, what, I was, what I was saying up front was that in America, where we have a very, very stilted discourse, uh, very limited, very narrow 
uh, public discourse about a host of issues, uh, which tends to steer toward a drab center. It's not very lively. It's not very uh, entertaining. And it tends frequently um, to try and shut people down by saying, oh, I don't like the way you're expressing that, or I don't like how you said that. Um, We don't, I, I think, fully take in that there are countries around the world, in fact, a lot of countries with which we'd like to compare ourselves, uh, where the discourse is far more robust, where the choices are far wider. And we make the mistake of presuming that uh, you know, a magazine like Charlie Hebdo uh, is forcing its, its impressions, its ideas down the throat of everyone. No. It's on the newsstand with dozens of other publications. Their circulation historically, at least in recent years, has been around 50,000. That's significant in France, and they are highly regarded by a lot of folks and regarded as intellectuals, regarded as folks who provoke and push the dialogue. But uh, this is not, you know, it's not like these folks are going on the evening news and putting these images up. So that's the first place to begin, that this is part of a broad palette of discourse that ranges from, you know, very conservative publications to very left-wing and all sorts of things in between. But when you understand it in that context, if you say that some folks who push the limits, who, who try to uh, expose and satirize and challenge the status quo, they can be shut down because we don't like or we are even offended by the images or the satire that they engage in, that becomes a dangerous game because ultimately, once you start chipping away and saying, well, we're going to shut you down because we find you offensive, or we're going to shut you down because we don't like the way you address politics or the big issues of the day, then it's a question of where does that end? And the important thing to understand about the folks at Charlie Hebdo was that they were very much on the left. Uh, some of their most brutal satire was of racism, was of racists, was of anti-immigrant politicians. In fact, it's very interesting to note that the one grouping that clearly shunned and was actually quite critical of Charlie Hebdo in the midst of all this, where, in fact, their founding members said, I am not Charlie Hebdo, uh, was the anti-immigrant right in France, it was the very strong uh, National Front Party, which uh, shunned the, the march on Sunday, and their leader, or their founder, Jean uh, Le Pen, said, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with these people. I don't like them. I don't agree with the way they do stuff. So, uh, you know, we need to recognize that, that this is, while there were images that they produced that I would not have done, there are images that they have produced that offend me that shocked me, and also, frankly, some that I saw that I just didn't think were very good, to be honest. That I, they, didn't, they didn't impress me as a very sophisticated uh, or appealing take on things. That's my impression. And when I fly through, you know, Charles de Gaulle, I may not always buy, you know, Charlie Hebdo. When I'm on the streets in Paris, I don't always pick it up. I pick up Liberation, Le Monde. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I can't defend their right to exist. And as we make that defense, we should then extend it out and recognize we know about these journalists who were murdered 
last week. We don't always know about the journalists who are murdered every day in countries around the world. And our, when we say, what we're really saying is we stand in solidarity with those who pick up a pen, who use a computer, a typewriter, a camera to try and challenge or at least speak some truth to power. No, no question about it. A beautifully said, as a matter of fact. Um, there are those that feel that because there were depictions of Muhammad and uh, certainly not terrorist, but, um, you know, uh, you know, anti-Muslim, some people would say, uh, cartoons with Charlie Hebdo, that that some people who may not know them or some people who may just have the opinion that they were Islamophobic or anti-Muslim. And there are those, including a Turkish journalist who actually wrote essays in a Muslim himself, um, who who said they were leftists, that they were not xenophobic, they were not Islamophobic, and that they were champions of all people, and they were champions of immigrants in France. Did you find that as a journalist? I I think generally I did. Now, I'm not going to speak for every member of the staff. Uh, and, you know, remember, on any, I've worked for daily newspapers uh, where I've gone out, you know, as a young reporter to go cover a story, and the photographer who was driving the car we were in was listening to Rush Limbaugh. And, you know. <laughs> I know two people that are parents of a kid at my son's uh, and daughter's school that work for the L.A. Times and are staunch conservatives. And what I mean by that is that, that you know, on any publication, in any any place in, in America, we have people who come from a lot of different perspectives, right, who have a lot of different opinions, and they can all work in the same place. So, you know, even within Charlie Hebdo, there were people who disagreed with one another, who, you know, said, I don't like that. Uh, I think you've gone too far there. So they had their internal debates. But I can tell you that some of the more prominent figures in the magazine, particularly uh, several of the cartoonists, uh, were known since the 1960s as among the most staunch advocates in France for immigrant rights, against racism, against the far right, in favor of pluralism and diversity. Now, at the same time, uh, they generally tended to be against religious extremism, no matter what form it took. And that could involve satirizing the Catholic Church. It could involve satirizing uh, the Jewish community. It could involve satirizing the Muslim community. Uh, sometimes they even satirized uh, non-believers. And so, you know, at the end of the day, uh, their, their cartooning pens and their satirical columns uh, could go after a lot of different folks, and I can tell you that people from many different backgrounds took offense and did not like what they did. But uh, I think that at the end of the day, if you talk about most of the, the major players in the magazine, what you found is that a long track record of uh, pointing their sharpest satire, at least over the, over the many years of the existence of the magazine, their sharpest satire at political corruption political extremists, political game players, and, and that's, that's a very significant thing. Uh, I give, you know, President Hollande in France a measure of credit uh, because few people have been satirized so frequently in Charlie Hebdo as That's a very Hollande. good point. Yeah. Yeah, very and good he point. he was able to take it. He didn't, he didn't say, oh, I'm not going to show my solidarity. In fact, he was one of the first to show up. 
All right, we're going to take let, let's take a let's take a break, and I want to talk about this from a perspective of hey, we're Americans, and they're French. Is there a difference in how we view satire, especially uh, the satirical style of Charlie Hebdo? And I also want to share some tweets and take some calls. We'll be back with our guest and you right after this. Don't go away. We are talking with the Washington correspondent for politics for the nation, John Nichols. Follow him at Nichols Uprising on Twitter. Follow the nation at the nation. And the website for the nation is thenation.com. Back, John Nichols is joining us. John, we'll talk about the perception of this type of satire with a French set of eyes versus American. But let's take some calls first. And we started out with Dave in Georgia on line one. Dave, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Leslie. Hi. Question or comment? Oh, just the, the comment re- reacting to the amount of security that they had at the Charlie Hebdo, um, uh, what do you call it, magazine. Uh, you know, anytime you're one of these 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 companies that, that have a high line or, or a skyline themselves, you know, in, in public opinion and such, you know, you've got to have a, a reasonable modicum of of uh, security for this type of activity because you leave yourself an open target, an easy target for these people, and and, and that's why these things happen. John? Well, you know, I I think that the caller brings up something that that has got to be, and that I know is causing immense amounts of second-guessing in France. Um, A a few years ago, uh, the offices of Charlie Hebdo were... uh, blown up uh, in, with a firebomb attack that was incredibly destructive, uh, actually destroyed the office. And it happened that people weren't there at the time, uh, but that brought an immense amount of security. Uh, and over time, as the months and years went by, uh, the security sort of dropped back. And obviously now, people who made those decisions to drop the security back up, you know, have to be second-guessing themselves and horrified by the, the choices that they made. But it is important to understand something that, that goes bigger than security. Uh, remember that, you know, Sharp, the editor of, uh, of the magazine, had a security officer with him. There was, one of the people killed in the room was a security officer. Uh, there was another cop killed right, you know, at the door or near the door. And, and so you can have an immense amount of security probably more than more than some of us can imagine, uh, as we do in many places around the world. And still these threats exist. So one of the great challenges that we have as individuals, as journalists, as leaders, uh, is to try and figure out how we we scope out an understanding of freedom of expression that becomes far more universal than it is today. Uh, and that makes it less likely that you see attacks of this kind. I'm not saying that's easy. Believe me, I'm not suggesting some naive sense of, you know, let's all talk about nice things and they'll happen. But I I do think this is an important part of what we do, to simply think that we can create enough security to protect everyone who expresses an unpopular, controversial, potentially offensive thought uh, is just not realistic. We, We do have to address this sense, which exists not just on the part of individuals, but sometimes even on the parts of governments, that they can shut down freedom of expression if they don't like it. Uh, And so we have a lot of work to do in that specific area. Thank you uh, to our caller for that. Let's continue with the calls. And uh, we go to uh, Tony in Poughkeepsie, uh, New York, line two. Tony, good afternoon. Question or comment? 
Yeah, uh, I just wanted to talk about the um, the fact that you know I think a lot of people are um, you know were upset that the cartoons weren't shown in the beginning, and uh, sort of the problem that I have with that is there's one thing to censor someone's right to say something, but there's you know still if you're a company like say an NBC or even a Fox News and you know you don't want to show something like that because it is disrespectful um i mean the right to hello tony maybe his phone went out of range uh john did you want to comment on what tony said oh i think the point tony was making was a very important one one of the more troubling uh playouts of, of these horribly troubling events has been a suggestion that the only way to show solidarity with Charlie Hebdo is to republish uh, their most controversial controversial images. Now, in Europe, many publications have chosen to do that for a variety of reasons, and, and some in America as well, and I respect that. But one thing to remember as we discuss freedom of expression is that you don't promote freedom of expression by saying to somebody, you must publish something because I tell you to publish it, or because... You know, that's what everybody's doing this week. Uh, We can show solidarity with Charlie Hebdo many ways. One way to show that solidarity is to talk about limits and restrictions on a free press in the United States, to talk about the hounding of journalists, which has occurred, to talk about the jailing and the threatening of whistleblowers, which has occurred in this country, and, you know, to show more solidarity with journalists in dangerous places around the world, not just in uh, the United States or France, but in places like Yemen, in the Philippines. Just in the last week, uh, journalists have been killed in those countries. Journalists are killed all over the world in many, many different settings. They are threatened. They are jailed. They are intimidated. And so I certainly don't have a problem with news outlets reproducing some of the cartoons to give people a sense of, of what we're talking about. I don't have a problem with, with individuals and institutions that choose to reproduce the cartoons simply to say, I have a right to do this. But by the same token, I also respect those folks who say, you know, look, I'm not going to publish something I find offensive. That I, I can understand that. What I think is far more important than, than simply republishing a cartoon is to make a deep commitment to solidarity with journalism and with freedom of expression in this country and around the world. And that commitment can be displayed in many different ways, including, you know, people calling this radio show and saying what they believe. You, Leslie, you know, talking, telling, telling what you think is important and hopefully speaking truth to power. Um, you know, we don't, we don't all have to, we don't have, all have to uh, do our job uh, in the same way. Absolutely. John, thank you. And callers, thank you. We're going to be talking hour three about some other issues, but we hope you'll stick around if we didn't get to your calls. And John, always a pleasure to have you with us, back with us again. Happy New Year. That is John Nichols. He is a writer for politics based out of Washington. This is Washington correspondent for The Nation magazine. To women who hoped to evade the ticking clock of time, Dr. Frederick Brandt was the most potent drug dealer in the world. And the dealer got high on his own supply. From Imperative Entertainment and the team behind Broken Hearts comes a new series that will challenge everything you know about fame, 
fortune, and the fear of growing old. I'm Justine Harmon, and this is The Baron of Botox. Botox. 